Heavenly Father, we come before you this day, dear God, in the name of Jesus, Lord. And we, Father, we thank you again for your, your precious word, Father. We thank you for the beautiful gift of life, Father. We thank you for the uh, blessings of being able to sing your praise, Father, and just being able to come here on a midweek, Lord God, and hear your word, Father, and uh, just get revived and get restored, Father, and Father, just get filled up some more, Lord, so we may go forth and Fulfill your calling in our lives, Lord. Father, we're so blessed that you love us, Lord God, and that you you give so many good and precious gifts to us, Father. I ask that you'd be with us now, Father, that you glorify this time, that you bless this time, Father, that you would be honored, that your word would go forth in a powerful way, Lord, and it would accomplish that which you would intend, Father, that it would bring back your fruit, bring back that which you would purpose, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Am I too far up? Okay, there we go. Exodus chapter 24. Oh, by the way, good evening, everybody. I probably didn't say good evening, you guys. Already. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 24. Uh, we're going to start from verse 1. And uh, yeah, Okay. And the word of God reads, Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses spoke, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve, he rose early in the morning. I'm sorry, I missed a skip line there. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took the took half the blood and put it in bases and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient and Moses took the blood sprinkled it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words so here we have the sort of the culmination as you remember we've been studying the book of Exodus here we had uh, God had just given the law to Moses uh, Moses had just been uh, had been given a, a list of the things that he was to go back and tell the people, and uh, we hear we see this kind of being the culmination of it. Uh, it's coming t- coming time to Moses is going to bring this message to the people, and he's going to uh, he's basically going to create a covenant with the people of God and God. So I want to start off with verse one. There's a few things I know. Uh, starting off with this verse. Uh, there was three things actually in particular that really stuck, struck out to me. Uh, first of all, he says, now he said to Moses, come, come up. So the very first thing God does here, it kind of reminds me of a picture of salvation here. Uh, you have three things. You have the what, we have the who, and we have the how. The what was, what did God do? God commanded, he said, come up. God extends his invitation. He, he invites the people, come up. Uh, it's God who extends his habitation or extends an invitation. In fact, I was reading uh, back in, um, turn with me real quick to the book of uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55. When I see the Messiah's invitation, because 
Again, when God invites his people, it's God who actually does the inviting. In fact, thinking back a minute to uh, the book of Matthew, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, we see another case of God actually inviting the people up. So here in um, Isaiah chapter 55, we have uh, what we would call a messianic uh, prophecy. This is something that Isaiah spoke, which is actually the words would be attributed to the Messiah. It says here in verse 1, we read, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, and come to me, here, and you shall live. So again, we see the invitation of the Messiah here, as Isaiah was prophesying, come. So that's the very first step in salvation. God says, come, come up. And the second thing I noticed, as I said, is, was the who. After he says, come up, God actually selected or was specific about who was to come. Going back to Exodus chapter 24, um, he says, after the Lord says, come up to the Lord, he names names. He says, who, who's to come up? He says, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of, the, of Israel uh, are to come up. So God not only calls, but God also selects. So he calls in salvation, and then he selects those to come up. As we uh, read in the book of, you probably are familiar with it, in the book of Matthew, it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, so here we see God sovereignly electing people to come up. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Psalm, uh, in the 65th chapter and the 4th verse, it says, uh, Blessed is the man whom you call, who you, whom you choose to approach you, to, to approach your dwelling place, to dwell on your tabernacle. Um, in fact, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to see an application of this in the New Testament, where Paul the Apostle... Um, it was actually talking to the Ephesian that was writing to the, the people in, uh, in Ephesus. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, in the first chapter, uh, reading from verses 3 through 6, we have again a picture of God's choosing us. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blame, holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption by son, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. So again here we see that God says that I chose you from the foundations of the world. God says that I chose you before time, before, before you knew me, before anything even happened. God says, I chose you. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a term that uh, theologians use there. Um, it's called divine election. Uh, I won't get into the technical parts of it. Not that I understand all that great anyway. But, the, but um, it is interesting to see that God, again, 
in the act of salvation, God chooses us. Here the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians said that God even chose us before the foundations of the world. Um, and then the third thing was the how. Like I said, we had the what and the who. And then we have the how. So going back to uh, Exodus, going back to the book of Exodus in the 24th chapter in that uh, in those opening verses there, in that, third, in that first verse, uh, after God says, the what come up to the Lord, to who? You and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. And then he tells them what to do. He says, and worship. So again, we see kind of like I said, a picture of salvation. God says to come. He selects who? Points out you and you and you and you and you. Come up. And then he tells us what to do when we get here. He says to come and worship. Uh, it's real interesting that God, um, that God would actually uh, not only choose us, but choose us for a purpose. And the purpose, he says, is to worship. Um, turn with me real quickly to Psalm 100. I know we're going to get through a lot of scriptures tonight. And we're going to kind of see a psalm that was written, a psalm of thanksgiving, but it kind of describes how we are to come into God's presence. And the Bible reads, Psalm 100, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his his gates with thanksgivings and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So again, we see that God says the what, the who, and the how. We're to come up as God calls us, and we're to come up and worship. And again, like I said, I kind of saw this as a picture of salvation. God calling the people up. God telling who to come, and God calling us up to worship. The very first thing that we are called to do when we enter God's presence is to worship Him because He deserves all of our worship. He's worthy of our praise and our honor. And that's the very first thing. That's the attitude. That's the uh, demeanor we should have. That's, that's what we come here for. We come to worship God. One of the things that I kind of found interesting, though, back in, in the book of Exodus, in that 24th chapter, in that first verse, though, is when He says, come up to worship... Uh, going back to Exodus 24, he says, and worship from afar, though. And I kind of thought that was kind of interesting. Why did the Lord tell the people to worship from afar? He invites people up. Okay, come, the Lord says. He, he calls out, elects each one individually. And he tells you to come up and worship. And he says, from afar. I thought, why, why was that, Lord? Why, did, why was there a distance put right there all of a sudden? So let's read on to the second verse. It says, and Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So we see that there was one that was actually called to come further, was called to come more into God's presence. Um, So the question was, that I had from that point was, why Moses? Why was Moses chosen to come up? And if we recall back... Like we've been studying the book of Exodus, it's full of, uh, has a lot of different typologies. Uh, we noticed about uh, Egypt being the world, uh, who Pharaoh was a type of, 
And Moses was a type also. Moses was a type of Christ. Moses was a type of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, Moses had held offices very similar to Christ. Um, in Moses' ministry, I have some notes here on some of the things that Moses did. Moses was a mediator. Moses would go between the people and God. God would tell the people, God would tell Moses, Moses, go and tell the people. So Moses would go and tell the people what God said to tell them. Uh, in the same way the people, um, or Moses would intercede with God before the people. Um, in fact, turn with me uh, just a little bit further in Exodus uh, chapter 32. And in verse 7 uh, through 14, we actually have a very interesting um, situation going on here. Verses 7 through 14 reads, And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down. Remember now, this is right after uh, the, God had just given the law to Moses. This is kind of recapping things. God had given the law to Moses on the Ten, the ten, commandments, the ten commandments on the two stones, or the two tablets of stone. The people had turned to idolatry. They're down there. They forgot all about Moses. They're, they're down there with Aaron. Aaron's now made a golden calf, and now they've got this. Now they're, they're involved in all this pagan idolatry. So the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for the people you, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them, and have made themselves a molten calf, and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them. And I will make you a great nation." Then the Bible says a very interesting in the next verse. It says, Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God. So we see here that God was saying, You know what? These people down here, they're completely disobeying me. They're completely disobeying Moses. They're turning to idolatry. Moses, this is what I'm going to do to them. So Moses now takes the time to turn and plead with God. And he says, Lord, why is your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now, as Moses says, Lord, these are your people. So this is kind of, what, and part of it was a test of Moses, uh, for, because God, again, God called them your people that you brought out, but God said, but Moses said, Lord, these are your people who you brought out. I know who they are. And he said, why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them and kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent this harm t- from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by, by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants, as the, your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he would do his people. So we see here that Moses interceded for the people. Moses was a mediator between uh, the people of God and between God. And we know that there is one true mediator. The Bible says that there's one true mediator between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So we see that's one of the offices that Moses fulfilled. The second thing was Moses was a judge. Uh, Flipping back in Exodus, uh, back in Exodus 18, uh, in Exodus 18.13 it says and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people 
and the people stood before Moses from morning till evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did, and he said, what is this thing that you do for the people? Why do you... Why do you alone sit and all the people who stand before you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another. And I make known them the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses, one of his jobs was the judge. He was to, sp- to dispense judgments to the people. Um, and again, we know that, that Jesus would be the one who would... Uh, actually be the fulfillment of the law. Jesus would be the, the, the divine judge. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. I'm going to read that real quick here. Um, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born. This, by the way, is a prophecy that Isaiah had written hundreds of years before Christ's coming concerning the Messiah. Uh, It says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see here that Christ wills to come as the ultimate uh, judge. Uh, so again, that's another one of the titles or one of the offices that, that Moses held that uh, Christ actually fulfilled. Uh, then we have uh, Moses was a prophet. Uh, going forth in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, <laughs> Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, verse 18, a verse probably all, a lot of you are familiar with. Uh, the Bible says, And I will raise up, and this is talking about Moses, uh, it says, and I will, God was referring to, to Moses. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command. So again, we see that, um, and also this was fulfilled, by the way, in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts in the third chapter, uh, it goes on to say that that, that, that that particular prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. So we see those are three offices. And then also Moses was the deliverer. Moses was to deliver the people out of Egypt. And we know that Christ uh, actually is, is our deliverer as well. Uh, but like all types, Moses is merely just that. He's a type. He's a foreshadow. He's a symbol of the true one. Uh, because there's only one who would actually fulfill all these things to their fullness, and that would be Jesus Christ himself. In fact, uh, to kind of give you a little bit of a difference between Jesus and Moses, the writer of Hebrews actually has some interesting things to say. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, in the third chapter, it reads, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. Here he's kind of comparing Christ to Moses. He says, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than he than the house. For everyone for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So we see here uh, indeed that Christ's office of clearly surpassed that of Moses in, um, in his uh, work in, in, the, in redemption. Uh, so going on back to Exodus um, 24. 
And in verse 3, there was a couple of things that I noticed also. Um, verse 3 starts off with, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And I thought, boy, that sure is, uh, sure is different from what a lot of people do nowadays. Not to say that that goes on here. Was, we have to thank God because we have faithful people here who teach God's word in its fullness. But, um, I mean, how many people could that be said of? How many false teachers are there out there? How many, uh, how many people fail to give all of God's counsel? Fail to reveal all the, the counsel of God? And another question is, why is that important? Um, well, when you think about it, you know, all the cults or every religious group starts off, or I shouldn't say starts off, but in some form or fashion reference Jesus, they'll reference the Bible, they'll say he's a good man, they'll say a lot of good things about him, but they'll always change the truth. They'll never, ever give you the entire word of God. Um, I found an interesting quote. Um, speaking of cults, there's a guy by the name of Alan Gomes who defines a cult as a group of people which claiming to be Christian embraces a particular doctrine or doctrinal system taught by an individual leader, group of leaders, or organization which denies one or more of the central doctrines of the Christian faith as taught in the 66 books of the Bible. I thought, boy, how many groups does that apply to? How many different people are out there today that uh, they'll t- tell you part of the word, but they won't tell you all the word? In fact, I can tell you a story. I have a good friend of mine who... He's a Christian. He's a good brother in the Lord. And uh, one time we were talking, and he was telling me about his brother. And he told me he'd been witnessing his brother for years, and uh, his brother wasn't saved. His brother didn't know the Lord. And um, somehow the, the topic came about, uh, we were talking about witnessing and sharing our faith with others. And I, I kind of shared some things with him, and I kind of said something about the doctrine of hell. And he looks at me and goes, oh, no, 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 brother. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't say anything like that. I wouldn't say anything about hell. I looked at him and I said, what do you mean you wouldn't say anything about hell? He said, well, you know, I just, you know, where I come from, man, that's, we don't talk about that. That's just not something that we mention. I thought, so then when you are inviting people to come to Christ, and you, you tell them that they need to be forgiven of their sins? Well, you know, that's, you know... That's not something that we talk too much about sin or hell. I thought, hmm, that sure is interesting. What kind of what kind of message of salvation is that? I thought, did you read the Bible? I mean, is that what God's word says? I mean, because if you think about it, there's no way you can read the G- the words of Jesus and not and come up with something that He has to say about hell. And it's not a very fun place. And telling people to avoid it was one of His priorities. So. Um, but I thought that that was something that was interesting. In fact, uh, speaking of cults, <clears throat> I'll read you guys a quick little story I, I read. Uh, you guys are probably familiar with this guy. Uh, Jim Jones founded People's Temple, quote-unquote, Christian Church near Ukiah and moved to San Francisco, promising a utopia where people of different races, education, and skills would work together for common good. His social programs for the poor and elderly won him praise. He, is, he as well connected with some of the region's most powerful political figures, even winning appointment to the San Francisco Housing Authority. 
But in the 1970s, when the People's Temple came under growing suspicion for abuse, for abuse of its members, Jones and many of his followers moved to an isolated settlement they had carved out of the jungle of Guyana. In November of 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan, under pressure from family members that people were being held against their will, organized a trip to Jonestown with a few journalists and concerned family members that accompanied him there. Uh, they were there for one day and heard mostly praises from the residents, families expressing their joy and desire to stay. Two families, however, slipped him, slipped him messages uh, to Ryan that they wanted to leave. Uh, Ryan's party were set to leave the next day, and when they tried to board the planes to depart, they were ambushed by Temple gunmen and fired upon, killing five people. As the shootings were taking place back at the community, Jim Jones gathered his followers together and put into effect a massive suicide plan that they had rehearsed before. Grape-flavored punch laced with cyanide was given to the children first. Adults willingly drank the punch or were shot by gunmen who enforced the mass death or suicide. 914 people died. I think it's pretty important that we were told the whole counsel of God, all of God's word. Um, you know, it's really a tragedy when, um, when churches think that they can get away from God's word when they preach, when they want to teach other things, and other things become more important than the word of God. Because there's nothing else that causes for the, spirit, the church's edification other than God's word. God's word is the transforming power. God's spirit and God's word is what changes us. That's why I'm so, again, I'm so thankful that we have this church here and we have faithful, our pastor is so faithful and diligent in preaching God's word every Sunday and every Wednesday and on Tuesday mornings. And I mean, just all the people that, that come here, you know, we have uh, a wealth of people who, um, you know, are elders and so forth. And, and um, again, it's just such a blessing because, again, that's, that's really what the church is about. And that's how the church grows. And that's how the church avoids deception is by knowing God's word. Uh, I found an interesting quote from a lady who was actually a survivor uh, that Jim Jones quote. She said, nobody joins a cult. You join a self-help group, a religious movement, an organization. They change so gradually, by the time you realize you're entrapped, you can't figure a safe way back out. Isn't that true? And the Bible has a lot to say about those who um, don't preach the full counsel of God. Uh, in fact, in the book of Second Peter, Peter was finishing up his epistle that he wrote. And in uh, the third chapter, I'm going to start reading from verse 13. It says, now, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to, found, to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. And account that the, the long suffering of the Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destructions 
as they do the rest of the scriptures. So here we see a solemn warning from the Apostle Peter that there are people who actually will twist the scriptures. There are people who will deviate from the truth. And he was referring to Paul as one who gave God's counsel, who revealed God's word. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself, in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, we kind of have a the summation of Paul, Paul's life here. Paul is uh, actually about to be tried, and Paul knows that his time uh, is, is coming at hand, for his death is near. And he says, in Acts 20 and 25, he says, And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why did Paul say he was innocent of the blood of all men? The very next verse he says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I didn't declare, didn't stop to tell you the whole counsel of God. I didn't tell you part of the word. I didn't tell you pieces. I didn't tell you the part that would make you feel good. I didn't tell you the parts that would just make you feel good, bad. I didn't tell you bits and pieces. I gave you the whole counsel of God. So therefore, I've done what I've called to do. <clears throat> and in the book of Revelations, we have a stern warning. Uh, this was written by the apostle John. In closing the book of Revelation, which we know is the, uh, the consummation of things. Uh, in the book of Revelation is in the 22nd chapter, uh, verses 18 through 21 reads, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And anyone takes away from the words of the, prof- of the books of this prophecy, prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. So we see there's stern warnings for taking away from or adding to God's word or deviating from God's word or not giving the whole truth of God's word. And we see that there are dire consequences for that. And again, as I say, let's praise God that we have faithful ministers, faithful pastor here, and elders, and others who don't do that here. Um, Going back to the book of Exodus, and we're going to continue on there. And we read in the third verse... And it said, So Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. All the words, we will do. We're going to do them all, Lord. We'll do them all. We're not going to miss any, we'll do them all. <laughs> I can laugh now because we know what happens. <laughs> But I thought about this and I thought, you know what? How many times have I said, Lord, I'll do it. Lord, I'll do it. And failed to do it. So I kind of took it as a warning. Be careful what you let your lips utter, even in times of spiritual heights. Because we can make some promises sometimes. We can say some things that we don't always keep. Um, The Bible warns us in the book of Ecclesiastes about making oaths, about making promises. Simon, or Simon, Solomon, who was the wisest man on the, on the earth, the Bible says. Simon wrote 
and lots of proverbs and uh, like I said the Bible would record him as being the wisest man on the face of the earth had some very poignant things to say in the book of Ecclesiastes about making oaths in chapter 5 and verse 4 it reads when you make a vow to God do not delay to pay it for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you have vowed it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands so here we see that God doesn't take lightly when people make a vow to God he says it's better to not even make that vow than to make a vow and not pay it so it's like I said for me it really was a warning it really was a a calling if you will to remember that to guard my mouth Lord let me only promise those things or let me only say I'll do those things that I know in my heart that I can actually do Um, so going on in the book of Exodus uh, the next verse in verses 4 through 8 and the Bible says and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel then he said young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord and Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar and he took the book of the covenant and he read in the hearing of the people and they said all the Lord has said we will do and be obedient and Moses took the blood sprinkled it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words so we see here we have kind of a a, um, a ceremony if you will of uh, ratifying the covenant uh, the law remember God again has given his law to Moses here uh, and the covenant is actually sealed with what? sealed with blood um, it's kind of interesting because blood as we know uh, specifically points to life in the Bible so Moses first takes this blood and he dips some splashes it on the altar in a sense, what he was showing the people is that the altar is where is God's altar. God is binding himself to this altar. These words, these promises that God makes in this book, he's binding himself to them for life. Then after the people say they'll do them, he takes them and splashes on them. He says, this binds you now for life. You've now committed yourselves. You said you'll do these things. God is committed to, prompt, to, to doing these things. And now that seals the covenant. And this was the covenant of works. Um, some interesting things. The first of which I thought was, boy, I thank God that uh, that the Bible didn't end there. Uh, because one of the things God was showing here was he was showing what it would take for men to meet his approval. Uh, for men to be able to approach God on their own terms, for men to be able to come before the holy God, these are the things, these are the laws which you must keep. This is my standard. This is my, you want to be righteous before me, this is the things that you must do, and here's the list of them. If you do these, God says, I will do these, and you can approach me. And as we know, what happens from that point is not a pretty picture. 
The Bible says in Leviticus 18.5, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man shall live if he does them. I am the Lord. So the Bible, God says, do these things and you will live. But again, as I said, if the Bible isn't there, how many of us would actually live for eternity? I wouldn't raise my hand. (laughs) Because we know... We've all broken God's law. We know what happens when we try in our own to keep God's commandments. We know we fall woefully short. In fact, let's read the consequences of that in the book of Romans. The book of Romans in the third chapter. The book of Romans, Paul has been laying out uh, kind of showing how everybody's been guilty before God and the reasons for it and what's going on. And then he comes to the third chapter and the tenth verse reads, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of their way. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an empty tomb. Their tongues have... They have they practiced deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So we see here Paul's laid out what happens when man tries to approach God in his own power, pull up his bootstraps, man tries to be righteous. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. But there's a good there's good news though beyond that though, as Paul continues on, uh He says in the 21st verse, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You might say, Amen. Amen. It's a good thing that God continued on from there because, again, we see God's plan and salvation unfolding uh, because by the law we see that no flesh will be made justified in His sight. No one will be declared righteous by the works of the law because the law merely points us to how sinful we are. But again, God in His grace provided a way for the payment of our sins and that was through the blood of Christ Jesus. Uh, So continuing on... Let's study in Exodus 24, then verses 9 through 11. It's really interesting here. This is kind of a culmination after God had invite, told the people to come up. He says who, he says how. Uh, the people all, they agree to this covenant. And then the verse 9 says, And then it says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone that was like the very heavens in this clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand, 
So they saw God and they ate and they drank. You know, this is real interesting here because we have um, one of the few times in the Bible where it says they saw God. Because we know uh, in several places in the Bible it says that no man can see God and live. It says that um, God is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. So what actually did they see here? Well, it's kind of interesting the thing that Moses points out in writing the book of Exodus. He doesn't make any description of God here. He doesn't tell us what, he doesn't give us anything about what God was. He, He merely points to one thing. He says, and I quote, and there was under his feet, as it were, a work of pay, a paved, I'm sorry, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So the people, although they got a chance to come before God here, and it's kind of sign as to what they saw, it does say, or what they saw in seeing God, it does say what they saw underneath his feet. So if we think about the other times when people saw God and their immediate reaction, we, we have a clue of what probably happened here. <laughs> These people probably weren't standing there and all. They probably were down on their faces when they saw God. Because we see in every other occasion in the Old Testament when God approaches, when they see God, people know that they're in front of the most holy, righteous being that could ever be. And even then, even then, we're only, they've only seen a veiled picture. They don't see God in all His fullness. God, God in His revealed glory. Again, because the Bible says, no man can see God and live. God's very explicit in that. When Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. In, in Exodus 34, Moses is going up and Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses. I'll hide you in the cliff and I will cover your eyes. Make all my goodness pass before you, and you'll see my backside. For no man will see my face and live. He said, no man will see my express image. No man can see me in my full glory in your sinful state and live. So we see what the people did see here, again, was, the, was something under his feet. And they make some very... Uh, Interesting comments about it, saying it was a work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And I thought about that, and I thought, why would they comment on that? Why was that so important to make note of that? One of the things I thought about was that these were the elders that were actually commissioned by God. Thinking back here to the book of Exodus earlier, when Moses is coming out of Egypt, and Moses has to bring other people with him to actually help him lead the people to be elders. Uh, These are people that God's choosing now for a specific task to go forth now, and they're going to be the leaders of the people. Uh, They're going to be the judges, if you will. So God is showing here, they're seeing a, a vision of God, and they're seeing a vision of God on his throne. They're seeing a vision of the judge, the judge on his throne. And what do they see? His, what's his throne like? His throne is clear. His throne, his throne is clarity. His throne is just perfect. So they're saying, okay, I've been called to work. I've been called to do a task. The task that God has given me is to judge. God is the ultimate judge. He's the supreme judge. What's his throne like? What are his judgments like? They're perfect. They're perfectly clear. There's no, there's no blemish in them. There's no tarnish in them. This is the work that God has given these people, and this is why I believe the Bible is actually recording this. So that they will know that when they're called a judge, they're called a judge 
with perfect judgment, with clarity, with, with clearness. They're, they're called to judge in being mindful of the ultimate judge's uh, judge. Um, and another interesting point here that Moses actually makes is that he says, and he did not lay his hands on them. And again, like I said, we know that uh, the Bible explicitly says that um, uh, a sinful man will not, cannot dwell in the presence of God because of God's holiness. In fact, uh, I mentioned the book of uh, Exodus 32, 33. I want to read that real quick. Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. We actually have the... Um, we actually have the uh, description of, again, Moses and his encounter with God. And Moses says, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way, that I may know you, and may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to them, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we will be your, so we will be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. Then the Lord said to Moses, "I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name." And he said, "Please show me your glory." Then he said, "I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you." I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So shall it be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Now the interesting thing is that Although the Bible says we don't see the no man's seen God nor has seen uh, the face of God, we know that we have one who has revealed him to us, don't we? We know that although we have not seen the physical face of God, again, God doesn't have a physical face because God is a spirit, but we don't see the face of God, we don't see the ultimate um we don't see God in the fullness of his glory because we don't have the ability to do that. There was one who made him known to us. The Bible reads in the book of John, first chapter, and it says, verse 14, And the word, speaking of Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is before before me, before he for he was before me. And of the fullness and of his fullness we have received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten. Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So although we haven't seen God, although no man has been able to see God and live, we know that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. The Bible says that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
So, looking at the, the book of Exodus through the first 11, chap- 11 verses of uh, the 24th chapter, uh, in culmination, I just kind of thought it was real interesting that the picture that God painted here. You know, and a lot of times, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, Lord, if I was back there in those times, you know, I would have followed you. If I'd have saw the, the cloud following us by the day and the pillar of fire by night, Lord, it, I'd believe in. You know, people say, if, if I see some, uh, if I saw some divine manifestation of God, if God were to appear before me like he appeared before the Apostle Paul in some shining manifestation on the road to Emmaus, I believe in God. Well, the Bible says that he has been revealed to us. The Bible says that he has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And as each and every one of us go forth each and every day, we're called what? We're the body of Christ. So it's our job as Christians, it's our job as the body of Christ to reflect that, to reflect his glory, to reflect his love. I like something, I really love what uh, Pastor Michael uh, said on Sunday and in the sermon, and that is our prayer for the week should be, Lord, love through me. Love through me. Because that really should be, uh, for the Christian, that should be our um, that should really be our mark. We should really be striving each and every day to love like God loves. Because in doing so, then people will see God. Then people can't say, on the day of judgment, they can't say they didn't see God. They can't say they didn't have an opportunity. Because they'll see Him through us. They'll see Him through our work. They'll see Him through our testimony, through our lives. They'll see Him through our witness. And that's what we're called to do. Well, Father, again... We just want to thank you for this time of study, Lord God, and your word, Father. I just pray, Lord, that I pray that you would continue to bless us, that you would continue to keep us, that you would continue to lead us, Lord. Father, we know that your word is settled in the heavens, Father, and indeed you say that you hold your word higher than your name, Father. You place so much of an emphasis on your word, and we know your word is the the, um, consummation of the truth, Father. We know that in your word there is life, there is godliness, there is all things that we need for this life, Father. Father, and we know that your manifestation, Father, through the church, Father, sometimes is lacking, Lord. And Father, it's only lacking because we, Lord God, are lacking in ourselves, Father. Sometimes we try to do things in our own, Lord, and sometimes we... Father, I know at least I do. I can say for myself personally, Father, that I, I, like the children of Israel, Father, I'm so quick to say, Lord, I'll do it. And then, Lord, as time goes by, I look back, Father, and see that I have been doing such a good job of doing it like I said I would, Lord. So, Father, I want to thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. I thank you for, for covering us and for forgiving our sins, Lord. I thank you for the blood of Christ, which allows us to enter into your presence. Father, it allows us to come before you. It allows us to enter into that most holy place, Lord God. But Father, I just pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord God, again, for the task at hand to, to be your people, to be your witness, to be your light, Lord. Father, that we may go forth, Father, fulfill that great commission, Lord God, making disciples, Father. That we may go forth, Father, 
Again, not in our might, not in our power, Father, but by your precious spirit, dear God. Lord, again, we thank you for all things. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious holy name we pray. Amen.